0: welcome back to another episode of Thought Behind Things. Today's I English I But here on forth, I'm going to be speaking in English, because the guest that we have today, one of the most, um, uh, you know, requested guests at the TBT community as well. We have with us, Brandon Teminsky, who is the CEO and founder of Sada Pe. sir. Thank you so much for being part of the show. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs>
1: the problem is I've, I've seen I've seen you around, I've heard so much, but all of the podcasts are mostly in Urdu, so I can't really understand them that well. Yeah, but I You've understand. had some awesome guests I saw recently, you know, not too long ago, you had, you had Imran Khan, that was impressive. Um, I don't know how you pull all these people in that that's that's incredible. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So I'm
0: gonna jump right into it Brandon Um, and 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 Starting with the format the way that we normally do where were you born? What was early life like for you? And uh, you know, just
1: uh, Yeah, tell me about uh, your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody's curious, (laughs) especially what's the white guy doing in Pakistan? Um, So born and raised in Miami, Florida in the United States and uh, I was essentially a really introverted um, video game addicted, nerdy kind of guy when I was much younger, and uh, really, yes, yes. For some reason, you wouldn't. Have I had this. <laughs> I had
0: this impression that you'd be the sort of frat boy who was yeah, one of those bad boys who couldn't really, you know, work out in college, and so they were like, "Okay, the U.S. isn't working out for me, so I'm gonna go
1: travel the world." Well, <laughs> okay, no, no problem. <laughs> I'm not offended. <laughs> um, yeah, so so essentially, I, I played a lot of. Of video games. And I would do these online tournaments. And I had a team that didn't have a website. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to make a website for my team because every other team online had a website. So I taught myself very basic programming, first with um, HTML, then, then later PHP. And what um, year was this? Or rather, I, how old were I was, you? I was, I, was, I was like 14 or 15 years old. Wow. So a long time ago. But I realized I was a very bad programmer. Um, but that, that allowed me to do a few things in my early years. So I, I, I built an online business. Now I can talk about it, but it's, it's kind of funny. I built an online business selling Twitter followers so i got people to follow each other and using php i built this website and as a kid i was making like 500 dollars a day really and and that's what hooked me to business
0: was this like a like a farm of sorts or was this all human beings following each all, other all and
1: human beings so you would join the network okay. and you would follow everybody who came before you and then whoever joined after you would follow you and it was this this little train that you got on interesting interesting so and were they making any money as well they were not making money. They, they were just trying to promote themselves. They wanted more followers. So I said, hey, you, you could join this network. And if you pay extra, you'll get more followers. Interesting. So and so how long did that, did that last? It uh, lasted about a year. Um, and there was a lot of learnings from that. So I, I didn't appreciate the success. It kind of happened overnight. Mm. It went viral. So I've always been a student of all these growth hacks. And um, one growth hack that I used was basically to... Um, have people tweet when they joined. And by tweeting, you had all these new members who would tweet about it. And, and that got a lot of exposure. So maybe in, in like two or three weeks, it, it scaled quite quickly. Um, but I didn't appreciate the success. And um, ultimately, I, I didn't keep up with the business. Mm. Um, so over the course of a year, I, uh, I lost out to competitors. But that, that was a lot of important learnings. I think if you fail a customer, it's really hard to get them back once you break that trust. So I've kind of uh, stuck with that for the rest of my business career. Interesting, and so this was when you were in high school? I was I was in high school, so I was about 14, 15 years old. Yeah. And
0: uh, what was high school like? Just your generic. I mean, for, for a lot of Pakistanis, they've seen a lot of uh, movies in fr- from the U.S., right? Like high school movies. Is it the same as they show in the movies?
1: Yes. Yes. It, yeah, somewhat. So it's very clicky. So um, you will probably end up in a in a group that, that kind of identifies in a certain way. Like you might have the frat, bu- frat boys or jocks in, let's say, university. Um, but in high school, um, you don't really have fraternity life. So... Maybe my group of people was like the video gamers and we were a little more introverted. But once I started having my own money, I was a lot more outgoing. Right. <laughs> and um, so that, that's when I started to bloom, I guess, and be more social. And were you a, a good student or were you somewhere in the average? I, you know, to be honest, I was, I was somewhat in the middle. Right. Because I wasn't so excited about what I was learning in school. I was a lot more excited about what I could teach myself. Right. Um, so that carried on into into university. And, and so and
0: sorry, I'm cutting you off. But sure. that, that self-learning, was that more practical or more, more you know built around the Internet, for example? Um, all around the
1: Internet. So all YouTube, just studying blogs and following all these different channels. And, and that taught me almost everything that I know today. Um, so in university, I studied economics and marketing mm-hmm. and I, I was taking this Internet marketing class and I was maybe around I don't know, 20, 20, 21 years old when I'm sitting in this class and I realize I'm not really learning anything. I had been doing business online for so long. And in this Internet marketing class, you're learning from a textbook and the textbook maybe took a year to write a year to get published, a year to be adopted by the school system. And maybe what you're learning is three years old. Yeah. So I thought, wow, in internet marketing, you are a dinosaur if you're following practices from three years ago. Yeah. And I kind of got fed up and I thought, I'm just learning so much more by doing business myself. And I, I dropped out. And you were there for how many years? I was there for the equivalent of two full-time years, but over the course of four years. So why do you,
0: I mean, so you were essentially doing part-time? College, yes, part part time.
1: So instead of doing like five classes a week, I would do like two to three classes a week. Well, why why was that? Were you because it like I was a, working? Yeah. So was I had that a, a financial
0: constraint, or was that more of a I want to have a practical experience? Wha- or, you know, while I was running my
1: own businesses, so right. I had different online businesses that were already making me money, and I thought, wow, I'm I'm actually I'm already making money. Um, I'm already learning so much more from doing it myself, and. Uh, Maybe I should just spend all my time focused on business rather than learning from textbooks that don't really teach me too much. Makes sense. And so what sort of businesses were, were these at the time? Uh, there's too many, too many to count. Um, I was involved in men's skin care. Okay. I had uh, a business selling windshield wipers. So automotive aftermarket parts, aftermarket automotive parts. Um, I tried to build two real estate technologies. One was privately acquired. Um And then ultimately, fast forward to my last startup before Sadape, it was kind of like Uber for gas. So in the United States, everybody parks their car outside their house. Right. And we had an app where you could request gas and a fuel truck would come to your house overnight while you're sleeping. The company was called Gas Ninjas. So we'd (laughs) sneak by your car, we'd fill up your your tank of gas and then we'd be out. And in the morning, you'd wake up to a full tank and not have to go to the gas station. And you just build the credit card connected with the app. Yeah, so you'd, you'd add your card, you'd have automatic um, payments being processed. So it's kind of like a, a seamless, invisible transaction to the user. Um, and that was my, I had, I had experience in payments for a while, um, through those businesses accepting card payments. Um, but yeah, the, this, this one was kind of interesting, it started as consumer focused, and, and then pivoted towards business to business focus, like large, distributed fleets, think of like, police cars these policemen would take their cars home every night or the elevator technician or the air conditioning technician they would take their vehicles home every night and we would service fleets and you know fuel all those vehicles while they're in the person's driveway. Interesting. And so, so the they don't have to go back to like a central lot in the morning. They could go straight to their their jobs in that area. Makes
0: sense. Makes sense. And obviously because it's B two B, there's more premium available there as well in terms of uh, yeah. you know. Okay. So uh, and there was and a lot more money to be made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the the first couple of businesses that you mentioned were essentially exclusively e-commerce businesses where you were doing like media buying and selling these products to targeted uh, consumers. Sure.
1: Sure. A, a lot of e commerce, um, drop shipping, um, built a few different products, um, software as a service, but, but gas ninjas was, was like the, the most full product. And eventually that company got acquired. Right. So we sold the business to our main competitor over in Silicon Valley. And that was in the end of 2017. Um, so after that, I, I decided to take a break Interesting. and I thought I'm going to do a little mini retirement and, and see where else I can explore. So I, I left the United States, moved to Asia. Right, And I was living in Indonesia for about two and a half years. And, and that's where I got the exposure to the super apps of right. Asia. And particularly in Indonesia, there was a company called Gojek. And Gojek, you can imagine as like the Kareem of Asia. Instead of driving cars, um, these captains—I forget what they would call them—they would call them Gojeks actually. So I, I think that meant someone who would go get your stuff for you. Right. Um, so they'd pick you up on a bike, kind of like bikeya. Right. And that matured into a super app where you had you had payments, you had food delivery, you had someone someone could come and I think give you a massage. There was all these different features that Gojek had, and ultimately they went public in uh, the beginning of this this year for about $38 billion. Wow. So just Gojek was a part of my life every day. Fascinating. Um, and so I met a lot, a lot of people from the Gojek team and, and that kind of,
0: Took us to where we are now. <laughs> and, and these, these uh, uh, you know, Gojek is essentially servicing Indonesia only, or is it uh, in multiple countries across <sighs> Pacific Asia?
1: All over Southeast Asia, but it right. started in Indonesia, and it was one of the, the first most important unicorns in, in Indonesia.
0: Interesting. And so um, before you actually moved to Asia, the, the, the last startup that you sold, was that at a good multiple? So were you able to make some, like, was the idea... pretty Pretty (laughs) good okay
1: we didn't raise any venture capital right so when you raise venture capital then those investors will have expectations for what you would sell the business for and they will get part of the proceeds of that sale so it's just myself and my co-founder and we we had put up the initial money and uh, the proceeds just went to us as opposed to having to be split amongst many other people and so the app infrastructure and all of those things were built by your co-founder it was myself uh, my co-founder and then we had about 20 employees okay so you are you at this point
0: in time you'd become sort of a, an engineer as well
1: well you know I, I wasn't so much doing software engineering at that point um, but i think the technical background helped me keep up right. helped me think of things that we could potentially do in the future by you know putting these things together you you understand what's what's maybe possible so would you would you say you were more of a product manager role rather sure. than a software engineer? Sure, sure. Never studied product management, right? Um, but that's that's a big part of what I'm doing now. So instead of being more of a, a software engineer, even though I, I taught myself some some basic programming, um, I pivoted more towards product design and uh, growth hacking and branding. So that's where my passion is. Right. Um. So yeah.
0: And so you were in in, in Indonesia for. Two, and a, half two years. and a half years. And
1: yeah. were you working at the time or were you just sort of exploring? And I was exploring. I was trying to understand what I wanted to do next. So mm-hmm. I was actually in a co-working space. So mm-hmm. I took some space for myself. And uh, when I was in this co-working space, there was a Slack community for everybody in the co-working space. And one day, I look on the Slack community in the introductions channel where everybody else is introducing themselves. And I was, I was thinking, oh, I'll introduce myself. But I start flipping through and scrolling through everybody who had introduced themselves. And I, I saw... John Shepard. He was the CTO of Gojek's whole financial service division. I thought, wow, that's an interesting <laughs> person. I'd like to meet that guy. Uh, hey, John. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I connected with John on Slack, and I asked him to come have coffee with me. Right. And this was actually right as I had discovered Pakistan, just, just a few months after I, I had discovered Pakistan. I had, a, I had a friend of mine from university who was Pakistani.
0: Oh, so that was gonna be my next question because for most people, you know, they're looking at everywhere but Pakistan, I'll right? Bring so it back, yeah. <laughs> it's, Pakistan seems like this black spot, black hole, uh, because India is booming with unicorns yes. and Thailand and Indonesia and all of these its con- countries in Asia. Up until last year, Pakistan was just something that was I don't know. People saw it as a land of desert and camels, or what? But <laughs> for some weird re- <laughs> re- reason. It was consistently ignored. Yeah. Um, so for you, the, the way in was essentially a friend of yours who introduced you to the potential. Yes.
1: So I'm rather adventurous. And right. in university, if I had a friend from any other part of the world and they invited me to come visit them, visit their family, they'd say it kind of, kind of as a joke. Like, oh, Brandon, you should come and visit me in South Korea. And I thought, I'm going to go there. <laughs> right. So um, I had my friend at Atik Afzal. And um, I met him back in university. Hadn't seen him in many years, but he saw me on Instagram and he said, Brandon you're on my side of the world. Now you should come visit Pakistan. And I thought, wow, that's a really cool idea. So I visited and uh, that was the end of 2018 when I came for the first time. And I, I, to be very honest, I had that same impression you you just described where, you know, the West is really not so educated on on what Pakistan is really like. So when I landed, I saw, wow, this is not so different. I had been to a, a bunch of other emerging markets and, um, When I started to learn more and more about Pakistan, I thought, wow, this is a really big opportunity. And it was around the same time that I was thinking about fintech. So um, essentially, I I had started studying the market. And I learned that the banks in Pakistan have some of the highest pre-tax profit margins in the whole world. I thought that was crazy. (laughs) Um, On the other side, Pakistan has the lowest private sector credit to GDP ratio. Out of all the emerging markets, and it flips between number one and number two, worst. (laughs) Um, So banks make a lot of money, but they're not lending. And I was very curious about that. And there was this huge population of young people, so many of whom were already using smartphones, a million smartphones actually coming online every month, um, very good access to 3G and 4G connectivity. And on paper, Pakistan was really impressive. And you can compare it to a peer market like Nigeria. So I I was looking at Nigeria and in 2018, they received about $600 million in venture capital back in 2018, most of that went into fintech. And I thought, wow, all these smart people are investing in emerging markets are investing in a place like Nigeria. And when you compare Nigeria to Pakistan, Pakistan, I think only had about $10 million in venture capital come into the country in 2018. So I thought, wow, that's disproportional because Pakistan has a bigger population, a bigger middle class, more people using smartphones, better access to Internet, faster Internet. And actually, I think about 30 percent, less than 30 percent of adults in Nigeria have an identity card. Did you less than 30 percent, less than 30 percent? And did you know that in Pakistan, I think it's over 90 or 93 percent of adults not only have an ID card, Mm. but they have a biometric identity. And in financial services, you need to know who your customer is. It's called KYC. It's a right. big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anti-money laundering, counterterrorism financing. That's very important. You need identity. So I was, I was, I was so surprised. So I, I started digging in more and more. And every I would come month after month. I'd come for a few days. I'd come for a week, two weeks. And uh, finally, after a year of visiting, I thought, I want to do, do something in this market. Um, so when I was speaking to John... On that day, when we had coffee, I thought, maybe John could join as an advisor. Look at his resume. This guy was running a multi-billion dollar company, engineering at a multi-billion dollar company, specifically in financial services. And this was around the time that I think we were about to apply for the license that had just come out by the State Bank of Pakistan. And I thought he would look really, really good on that license application. Um, So John had advised for about a year. And over the course of that year, he was starting to see more and more of the potential because when John was in Indonesia, he saw Indonesia go from all cash to all digital, maybe in the period of like five years. Everybody in Indonesia is paying for everything with a, with a phone and a, and a QR code. Everyone. Almost everyone. It feels like everyone. I'm and it ha- happened. Tell you. Go ahead, yes. No, no, you, you go ahead. This happened in China. Right. It took maybe 20 years for that to happen in China, maybe 15 years for that to happen in, in, in India. Then you have Indonesia and all these other countries and it keeps happening faster and faster with each cycle in each country. So now in Pakistan, you have ubiquitous access to Internet and smartphones and they're getting cheaper and cheaper. So the pace of digitization in each of these markets is going faster and faster. So when John saw all that happening in Indonesia, and he realized what we were working on in Pakistan. He had joined Gojek when it was already pretty big, and he thought, "Wow, it would be interesting to work with Brandon to start from the very beginning and build something right at the precipice of this—maybe that's not the right word—but right at the beginning of of this huge revolution that's about to happen in Pakistan, this huge payments revolution." Right. Um, so I kept poking him, kept poking him, and finally he decided to join. So now John is our CTO. Oh, really? really? Yes, yes. From Gojak to to Yes, Sadape. he left a company worth tens of billions of dollars to join Sadapeh. Oh, wow. And Hopefully uh, you can meet him one day. Maybe bring him on the podcast. Where is he based out of? Uh, he's he, he's Actually, now he's in Karachi, but he travels around a lot. So he's in Pakistan? He's in Pakistan, not based here full time, because now he's managing an engineering team at Sadapeh across nine time zones. So Sadapeh goes all the way from the UK um, nine or ten time zones later, down to Australia. So he bounces around a lot.
0: And how many how many employees do you have at this point in time?
1: About 250 employees. And about 65 are in product and engineering. Do you have any uh, publicly shared information on your funding? We've raised a total of 20 million U.S. dollars to date, from mostly U.S. and, and U.K. investors. And that's uh, and up, up until tax. seed. That's up until seed. Yeah, we did a seed and then we did like a seed. Plus. One. Yeah. <laughs> seed Plus. Yeah. So when, when when we did our seed funding in um, twenty was it 2019, 2020, um, we closed about 7.2 million. Until that date, I think it was like nine point something that we had closed. And then um, this year, the investors had seen all of our progress and they thought, wow, this is going really well. Um, so they invested a lot more money. Mm-hmm. Um, at a much nicer valuation, and it was really hard to say no to that. Um, Interesting. So and so, uh, you guys have been uh, have been at it for a while. when was it officially launched uh, as uh, a startup? Well, I came here the first time in September twenty eighteen. For okay. about a year, I was understanding the market, meeting as many people as possible, connecting with everybody on LinkedIn. Um, quickly on that, I believe every time you connect with someone, you meet someone. That's an opportunity to get lucky i think right. you can create your own luck and it's just like a probability if you increase the probability if you increase the surface area the number of times you could potentially get lucky you will be more lucky so that's how i met the rest of the people who joined our team so our cfo Tessir ali our chief operating officer omar salimullah um and then our chief compliance and risk officer abdul kader sultan um i call him aq because i, I butcher the name sometimes <laughs> um but they are you know veteran bankers with you know extremely strong backgrounds. And and, um, and when did you guys apply for the SBP? So um, we applied, I don't remember the exact date, but it took about two years. It took some time to, to prepare the application. Once it was prepared and accepted, um, the state bank reviews it and then gives you an in-principle approval or NOC. Right. Um, and from that date, it took two years on the dot. near Nearly to the dot, but 24 months. So the EMI license in the UK takes... About three months to get, so I thought that's what I was getting myself into when we applied for this license in Pakistan. Maybe six months, maybe nine months, but it took two but it years. Took, took a while. Yeah. And now you guys had the license. Yeah, the commercial license was approved back in um, the end. I think it was the end of April of this year, and then we had our commercial rollout start in May of this year. And is there any estimate of the amount of people who are actively using SadaPay now? Well, we don't publish that. Right. Um, but it
0: is hundreds of thousands. Okay, so it's in yes. six figures. Uh, it's, yeah. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna shoot shoot some of the more simpler questions uh, on the get go.
1: Sure. Why do you keep people? Why do you gatekeep who who joins? Why are we keeping them waiting? Yes, <laughs> I get that a lot. Um, the the waitlist has kind of become like a cultural phenomenon here in Pakistan. Um, almost everybody's heard about it. Almost everybody's on it. Are you? Did you, did you? I did put myself in, Thank and you. I did get in because
0: I knew someone who knew someone, and you know, right. <laughs> yes. I got in uh, when you guys had one of those uh, early, I think, two
1: thousand or, or one of those. Well, you got in early. Yeah, yeah, I got in. Awesome. Early. So yeah, essentially, while we were applying for the license, this funny thing started to happen where people started hearing about us, and they went to our website, and we just had an email sign up form, and they would sign up, and then people started asking like, hey, when are we going to get our account? Because we just put a, a landing page together to show what we were going to build. Right. It wasn't even built yet. Um, so people kept bugging us. Hey, when, when, when can we use this? And actually, the, the, the biggest limiting factor was getting the license approved right. before we could actually roll out. Because it's a regulated space. You need a license to take deposits and, and serve people in financial services. Um, we didn't know what the answer would be if someone asked us. So we thought, hey, why don't we just put everybody on a waiting list? And we'll show them their, their position on the waiting list. And when they get to zero, they'll get their account. And I had a fun idea. Why don't we let people invite their friends? And if they do that, we will reward them by letting them skip the line.
0: Right. It's sort of like how Gmail sort of started.
1: If Sure, in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I had basically studied all of these growth hacks from around the world. And I thought, wow, this would be fun to do in Pakistan. Let's see what happens. Um, well over a million people had signed up pretty much just because of this growth hack. So people would invite their friends to skip ahead and they would tell everybody because they really wanted this account fast. By the time we got our license approved in, in April of this year, there was over 500,000 people who had signed up. Um, actually, the Play Store numbers of, of downloads don't show the total number of downloads if you look at our Play Store listing today because we, we, we now have a new Play Store app. The old one, which was the old waitlist, which I helped build myself. It was really bad, full of bugs. I'm sorry if you had problems with old app. Um, We deleted that, so that had a bunch of downloads. The waitlist helped us to make sure we could always deliver a very high level of service. So imagine when we got our commercial license, there was already 500,000 people who signed up. Imagine the technical and operational challenge of trying to onboard 500,000 people in one day. Imagine trying to deliver 500,000 debit cards in one day. Our whole team would probably quit within that week because it would be so stressful. Um, So the wait list uh, essentially protected us. We could onboard um, as many people as we could serve well every day, every week moving forward. So that allowed us to scale our team, scale our operations to support so many people who have already signed up. So there's still a waiting list. Um, and it's uh, still in the hundreds of thousands. It might have dipped under two hundred thousand, but there's more people signing up every day. So it's, you know, we're doing our best <laughs> to right. work through the makes sense. List. What's yeah. the vision here?
0: I mean, you you earlier mentioned super apps in in you know uh, I hate that word. Yeah, um, I'll tell you why. <laughs> and and then, and then you mentioned fintech and financial services and you know. So what's the re- what's the real vision with ZadaPay?
1: It's not a super app. I'll okay. tell you that. Um, The reason why I don't like the idea of super app is because people get confused about this idea of being able to build a super app on day one and launch it. Um, The the real super apps like WeChat and Alipay and Gojek, they took like a decade to become a real super app. And when you do so many things at the same time, it's really hard to do them all really well at the same time. So our vision is to be extremely focused. We want to do just a few things at a time, and we want to make sure that those things that we do, we do them really, really well. So we live very much by the name Sada. We like to keep everything as Sada. Whenever we build something, we ask ourselves, is it Sada, is it simple? (laughs) Um, You can imagine the app, the wallet, as a distribution channel. So we want to get as many people to use SadaPay, this wallet as possible, and take this distribution channel to scale. And as it goes to scale and has millions of users, then you can cross-sell different products and services and, and deliver value to, to users. So today, you can see the app. We've been operation, commercially live, operational for about five, six months. We've had a lot of growing pains, just trying to keep up with all of the demands. So we're just trying to make sure we can keep the lights on and everything stable, and we deliver a great service. Now, over the next months, you'll see a lot of cool new things come out. In the first few months we just wanted to make sure everything was stable now all the fun stuff begins Um, so i think the way we want to innovate Mm -hmm. is to see how we can distill the complexity of financial services into something that's really 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 so simple anybody can use it and we've started first with this you know tech savvy middle income demographic because i believe i strongly believe it's it's much smarter and much more sustainable to go from the middle down and serve everybody else. It's really hard to go from the bottom and then work your way back up. Right. And the reason why is because if you are serving the low income demographic in financial services, it's really hard to make money because the margins are so slim. The wallet size per customer is very small. They're really risk averse to trying new things with their money. And um, ultimately as a startup, you're, you're trying to climb this mountain to get to profitability, right? So if you make so much less per customer, you have to have huge economies of scale. You have to have millions and millions and millions of customers before you can turn any profit. So as a startup, you're, you're burning a lot of capital to get to that point and it's not sustainable. We try to be a lot more sustainable, a lot more efficient with, with how we grow and how we serve customers. So we started with the middle income demographic, Because that's where you can actually make money. And that's where you can turn a profit much sooner. Mm. We found a demographic who really gets excited about the proposition that we have. We spend no money on marketing. We don't run any Facebook ads. If you've seen a Facebook ad, it's only because we're doing some testing and and learning. Um, We don't pay anybody for referrals. We don't give out free Zinger burgers. Maybe like Easy has spent billions of rupees on free Zinger burgers. Um, And because of that, our growth is a lot more sustainable. Other startups have potentially put themselves in a really compromising position because they've spent so much money on customer acquisition in an unsustainable way. And we've been really, really careful not to do that. So we focus on how can the product grow itself? How how can the product be so good that we encourage people to share it? That it's a delightful experience people want to talk about. So that's what we've built, focusing on product-led growth, spend no money on marketing. And instead of spending money on marketing, you know what we do? We just invested into the experience, into the call center, into the support team. So when you interact with SadaPay, it's kind of like talking to a friend. You will get emojis in return. You will get GIFs in return when you're talking to us. And that is so different, so refreshing, because if you speak to a a bank representative, like a, a support representative at some big bank, it'll take you a long time to talk to them. They're very dry. They don't really care about you. And when you talk to us, it's probably because you have some issue with your money. And that's a very stressful moment for you. And if we can really be there for you in the moment of need, support you well, and you feel like we really care about you, that is so different than from what you've ever potentially experienced before with a financial institution that you're probably going to tell your friend about it. It's really, really remarkable. So instead of investing in marketing, we've invested in the experience. And that word of mouth has driven our whole business to, to where it is today. And I think we'll continue to be able to do that for a pretty long time makes sense um if i were to ask you and and, and there would probably be two two
0: two questions here but first y- you talk about the user experience and you're you you know you really putting that effort into the engineering of the product and the simplicity of the product um but then obviously because you're a financial service you are dependent on the on the sort of the rails that uh, the current ecosystem has yes. available right and uh, in Pakistan, unfortunately, and we've seen that with other banks as well, bigger banks as well. You know, the apps go down. Um, it, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. But I'd open a bank uh, app, and it would take even in the, on the fastest of, fastest of internet, it would take 10-15 seconds to just load. Yeah. Um, then if I were to transfer a payment, it keeps on, you know, sort of rotating the bubble. There's no real. I don't. I never really know whether the money has been, uh, you know, transferred or not. Sometimes the money gets transferred. It's deducted from my account. And then you know you're following a long trail of uh, getting your money back, and it's quite problematic. And and we saw su- some issues like that with Saadape as well, uh, or on Voice of Customer. I saw that on the Facebook group, and I I saw that you were very active, um, you know, trying to solve those. Yeah. But I do also understand that in terms of when you're really scaling, and we're talking about 10 million customers, um, that's not sustainable, right? Like you can't be sitting there solving all of those problems. Um, so the first thing I'd like to understand is, um, how do you ensure that the, the quality of service in terms of the actual product, which is money being transferred or money being used in whatever way, is actually substantially better, um, considering it is inherently uh, being you know supported by the same rails. Right. And second of all, do you think Rust somehow helps you or will help you in the future? Um, changing that user experience that currently exists. Because you mentioned Easy Pesa and you mentioned a lot of these other companies, um, they, they spend a lot of mar- money on marketing. yeah. But in my experience, it's always the user experience that's really been missing, right? Like you can spend all the money on marketing, but if I'm there and I'm trying to s- send money and there are some sort of stupid problems, the app is telling me one thing, but actually something else is going on or, I actually didn't get enough transactions. There's a limit for transactions, but somehow I'm within the limit. The app shows me I'm within the limit, but someone's transferring money to me and the, suddenly there's a pop-up, You know, the limit ex- has exceeded. So yeah. something is going wrong somewhere and it seems like they don't really care. For a lot of these bigger companies, um, their tech is essentially outsourced to third party uh, you know, consultants. That's it. Um, and so it, I understand they're not the ones who, who might be able to solve this problem. So so, how do you uh, so yeah? First, how do you reconcile with the re- current
1: trails, and how does Rust affect that? Sure. Um, so you you hit it with the last point you mentioned. Banks do not do not build their own technology. They might build a little bit, like the connectivity tissue between systems, but they're so reliant on vendors, and their tech teams. I don't want to say are, are weak, but they're not as strong as they should be for something so important, right? Um, and that is. Our core competency. So John's core competency, incredible engineering. Um, So even though we are reliant on these third party systems, the payment rails, the banks themselves, Zatapay is pretty much always online. Our success rate for transfers is like 99.98%. And that last 0.02% is usually because something else happened with someone. It's not a Satape system that went down. So we build a lot of redundancy into our processes, but ultimately we're still reliant on that that banking switch. Uh, there's a few hops for money to actually get transferred. So there, maybe there's the banking switch or the connectivity between the switch and the bank and the bank itself. So the bank could go down. The connectivity layer between the bank and the switch could go down itself. The switch could go down itself. The connectivity between the switch and us could go down. It's not our connectivity. It's someone. It's a third party that provides it to us. Um, so even though all of these other things could potentially go down we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can create redundancy so that even if there's anything that fails along the way, we can continue to re- retry things so that seamless to the user, um, money will always make it through. So we spend a lot of time on that. So these, yeah, these 30 part, third party systems, um, and when they go down, it causes a lot of frustration for for potential customers or customers of ours. Um, And we understand that this is a stressful moment when money disappears into the nether. (laughs) How can we really pay attention to that and proactively try and find it? Um, Oftentimes, if this happens with a bank, they're not going to proactively do anything for you. Um, You'll probably have to check your statement and reach out to the bank and be very vigilant about that dispute process and chasing them down. So we try to turn that on its head and see if we can be more proactive. If If we find any money is missing... We're on top of it, I say like white on rice. <laughs> um, so that that that's a bit of a differentiator for us. And and the time that you mentioned. With a bank, they're reliant on so many systems and they have such um, so many systems that are so siloed and and not very efficient. And they could be 10, 20, 30 years old. So you might open an, a legacy banking app and it takes like 20 seconds to load. For a millennial or Gen Z, we think in milliseconds, right? Right. If a web page takes two or three seconds too long to load, you're going to get frustrated. right? Yeah. And yeah. imagine the same thing happens with your banking app. So when people try SadaPay, it opens really quick. When you send a transfer, it feels like it's almost instant. And that's really refreshing. Um, and that's how you hook millennials and Gen Z with, with the speed and, and attention to detail there. Um, but, but there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. For these third-party systems and the payment rails um, the state bank has worked really really hard on this new payment mechanism called rost so all of the financial institutions all of the fintechs will be able to plug into rost and it's an instant payment rail the money either goes through or it doesn't within 20 seconds you have finality so it doesn't disappear into the nether Theoretically, it should never happen. So if you try to make a transfer within 20 seconds, you will know if that has actually gone through to the final recipient or not. With the existing rail, um, it doesn't really work like that. It might get deducted from your bank account, and then it's, it tries a few times because there's some redundancy that's been built in, but not not in a modern way. Um, and then ultimately, it could just disappear for a little bit. But usually, if you try hard enough, you'll find it. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, I think Rost will will be a big deal for Pakistan. But we've been hearing about Rast and, and, and it will be a big deal for Pakistan,
0: but we haven't really seen anything substantial. I mean, we have seen banking apps start popping up these sort of, uh, mm. you know, notifications saying, come on Rast or make a Rast payment. Uh, but it seems like it's all being done separately from your current system, it's rather than, you know, just sort of one day switching the current system to, mm. I mean, it doesn't make sense for us to- There's a bit
1: of a conflict of interest. Okay. The, the reason why I say this is what I've observed is that banks they have a lot of expenses right they need to pay for their bills they have thousands of bank branches and thousands of people that sit in the bank branches and have to move paper around so it's, it's very expensive to run a bank so they need to charge fees and banks will try to charge fees for everything especially your bank transfers with rost you're not allowed to charge fees so it almost feels like me as an observer in the payments ecosystem, it almost it, it almost feels like some of these banks don't really want to promote Rost as much, maybe because they're not allowed to charge for it. Hmm. But the old system, you could still charge a fee, right? right? Um, so maybe they're still clinging on to that last bit of revenue, not realizing that by getting everybody onto Rost, a much better system, something that will actually be much better for the whole ecosystem um, that will increase the size of the pie. Maybe people today aren't really so happy with digital payments. I think, oh, I can hand you a rupee; it doesn't cost me anything. So maybe I just give you cash instead of send a digital transfer, because m- maybe there's a risk that my money disappears into the nether for some reason. Right. Um, but with Rust, it's actually it's free, it's instant, it's so simple. Your account number becomes your phone number, or you can have an alias like a username or your email. Um, so we've seen in other markets around the world where you have this kind of instant payment rail, you you get such fast adoption, whether it was in Brazil or, or India with UPI, um, Rast for Pakistan will be a really big deal. I think the central bank will maybe need to urge the banks a little bit more. Um, but it's, it's going to happen sooner, sooner
0: than later.
1: It, yeah, it's been mandated. So every bank has to connect. Every fintech has to connect. So... Um, we're almost there. We're almost connected as well. Uh, we were a little late to the party because our license got approved later than everybody else. Um, but ultimately, I have I have a tremendous amount of faith in what right. Rast will do, and then maybe even QR codes. You you talked about legacy digital payment systems like Easy Pass and Jazz Cash.
0: Um, if I were to compare the more recent additions like Neape and a bunch of others. I mean, I feel like, you know, these days you pick up a rock and there's a new FinTech. (laughs) (laughs) But um, if you were to compare yourself with them, um, how would you differentiate and how would you say maybe, I mean, is it just like, you know, you're the same and it's just a race or do you think there's something that you're doing
1: fundamentally different uh, that helps you uh, outshine? I think you can consider our focus and attention to detail as being a big differentiator. So the service we deliver will always be good. Um, Hopefully great. Then other fintechs, I feel as if they're getting a little distracted. They're trying to do too many things at the same time and more features doesn't necessarily equate to better experience. When we look at more features, we look at more things we have to maintain and make sure they're really good. Um, So I think we're going to be very focused on a few areas of business these other fintechs are going to be focused on different areas of business and I can describe it by giving an example of how certain kinds of customers will be served better by certain kinds of financial institutions if you are a small farmer you're going to probably work with a microfinance bank that's close to your area that that understands the kind of business that you have and can help you with your your financing for your your uh, your, your your goods that you need right um, if you are a young tech-savvy millennial, Gen Z millennial, then you'll probably want to use one of these FinTech apps. And Satapay will serve certain kinds of pain points for these people. Um, We will lean more towards international payments where others might lean more towards serving local merchants. So you can see is doing some really cool things around um, enabling merchants to accept payments and have apps within their app. Um, So they're going in a bit of a, a different direction than us. We love the idea of serving freelancers really well, helping them accept international payments. I was a freelancer. I have over 8,000 orders on my own Fiverr account. So I, I learned a lot about their pain points. Remittances. Sadapay will launch the lowest cost exchange rate in the world for rupees. Bringing rupees in, I think, will be great for the country from freelancers and remittances. Right. Um, there's other ways that we can um, extend credit to people, maybe with zero interest. Um, If you think about a bank, they have such high costs to deliver financial services. We've gotten rid of all that stuff. We don't have to pay for the bank branches or the people to sit in them or the manual processes. We're very lean on new modern technology. So our cost to deliver financial services has come down to the point where it's so low, we can offer a lot for free or at a better rate than anybody else. Mm. So we could potentially extend credit at a lower rate than any of the banks that exist today and to people who, would, who banks would never even lend to, right? Um, insurance is really interesting as well. Micro insurance, insurance for your your cell phone or e-commerce insurance. You buy something, it doesn't show up. You buy something, it's broken. You buy something, it's not what you ordered. E-commerce insurance, that that's kind of like included with maybe the, the credit card you got from SADA Pay. And that will cover you whenever you buy something online. And the, the filing process will be SADA, we promise, right? Um, so when we extend insurance products because we have so much more data than any other institution we can be more effective at underwriting our customers and have a lower premium all of our costs are lower so moving forward we we build and scale this distribution channel and all the other products and services that we could potentially launch we're basically just going to come in and launch a better product at a lower price point or potentially free right so anything a bank could do we could potentially do
0: Right. If I were to ask you how does one buy into Sadape, uh, does one have to tr- transfer through a bank?
1: Yeah, so you you could transfer from your existing account. Right. There's a cool thing that you could do with Baikia. Baikia will send a rider to your house so you can deposit cash. What are the um, charges for that? Off the top of my head, I don't I don't actually remember. Is um, there
0: like a percentage or is this like a lump sum fee or
1: I remember it was free at one point. Could be like twenty or fifty rupees, but okay. In our app, it says so somewhere. Um, you can receive- But there is an opportunity to just sort of give your cash to, to a rider and- Give cash. Um, technically, I think you can go to an Pez agent and they're enabled to send over the counter bank transfers to SataPay. But okay. it costs money, we don't really promote it. And the Pez agent doesn't really understand it. Right. Um, they don't really know that this feature is available. Um, but I like, th- I like the opportunity for these um, these Nadra agents. So Nadra made an, a really, really cool partnership with OneLink. Okay. And now they're going to enable all these Nadra eSahulet agents, there's like 10,000 of them, to be cash-in agents for the ecosystem. Okay. And hopefully it'll be at a at a very good rate, and that will help digitize more of the cash, but most of the people using SataPay are receiving money already from some digital channel freelancers might receive it from their um, from fiverr and upwork um, you have people receiving remittances from like transferwise and world remit and these other companies when you open a Pay account you get an international bank account number an iban right so that re- that lets you receive international payments uh, what are the limits on your on, on, on the accounts right now today the limits are 200000 rupees per month okay um, that's if you have a biometrically verified account The state bank, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, Uh, state bank has released draft regulations, so I'm sure some people have heard about them, to increase the limits for EMIs. Okay. Um, And it might end up that the the limits are increased to maybe $500,000. And then you'll have certain types of transactions that could be um, exempted from the limits, like let's say your salary, as an example. Um, You could think of an EMI wallet as a lower limit account that's a lot less risk for the central bank or for a financial institution. So it's a lot easier to get the account. You have less requirements when you sign up. You can sign up instantly from, from your phone. Um, and then you have bank accounts. So bank accounts will require a lot more information, salary verification, um, maybe your, your mailing address verification, et cetera. Um, and then you get a, a bank account with a traditional bank and traditional user experience. Do you think you're ever going to apply for a, for a full-time uh, you know, bank account license? We did. Uh, So we did apply for the digital bank license. And it's really interesting to look at how fintechs around the world have evolved. There's many different directions. You could go for the digital banking license. Mm -hmm. You could work with bank partners where the EMI or the fintech becomes the distribution channel. And then you work with banks to uh, distribute those products. Um, so there's, there's different paths to becoming this sort of full stack financial institution. Um, the central bank hasn't approved any or the central bank hasn't issued any NOCs for the digital bank license. Um, it's very interesting for a fintech to mature into having a digital banking license. So I mean, it's
0: still in the process. We might be able to see that sometime in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah? it's interesting because um, on one hand, you get all the benefits of being a digital bank. Um, On the other hand, it brings in a lot of bureaucracy and added controls and complexity to your operations. It requires a a lot of maturity. Um, So certain fintechs may not be ready to become a a full stack bank uh, or commercial bank with that commercial license. But the license that we have now, the EMI license, it's really appropriate for a fintech. You keep a lot of agility it's mm. a lot less expensive to run because you have a lot fewer requirements for compliance and government
0: um so Korea recently invested a lot of money into uh you know one of these new startups by I believe kuram Jamalis uh heading that sure. and uh, you know Tanya uh, was instrumental in that as well so tell me a little bit about uh, what that is and is that uh, you know is that a potential I don't competition? Know enough about it <laughs> is that a bank is that a uh, you know fintech play because I, I believe it's it already exists somewhere in Africa and they just sort of are
1: they implementing the same model? I'm not sure, but essentially, the license doesn't guarantee success, okay. right? Um, first, you have to have a, a great team who can build a great product, right? A product can serve different kinds of customers, different use cases, different businesses, right? Um, so just because someone gets a bank license doesn't necessarily mean they take over the whole country. Um, but I think it is good that there are more players coming to Pakistan who are going to compete for this market more competition leads to better service for consumers right right um and I think the state bank has has real, realized this and they're kind of putting a little bit of a fire under the banks to really push them to go digital because they've already been so profitable from not really doing much so
0: I know that that bank has gotten a license is there any other bank who's gotten a license as well for digital digital bank no one's gotten a digital bank license. no one no one's gotten not a, even right? the noc nothing oh, has okay. been done yet so
1: everybody's still waiting on. Uh, everybody's still waiting, and it, it'll it'll be a, a long time. I think the EMI license takes two years to get approved. The digital bank license is is a it's a big deal, right? right? I would think it would take at least two years to go through that same process again, and then you have a phased rollout where in year one you're capped to a certain amount, then year two you could do a little bit more, year three you could do more after that. Makes sense. Um, you, you you earlier talked about you know crea- creating a
0: a cashless society, and I, we've been hearing that from sort of these telecom marketing companies uh for right over 10 years you know just selling the dream of wechat and um you know alipay and so on and alipay just, you know spent a substantial amount of money with EasyPesa as well but somehow in pakistan it's just not happening do you think there's a there's a cultural problem do you think there was a, the way that the problem was approached and lastly do you think do you really see you or Nayapay or or some of these newer newer folks be able to create a um, uh, maybe a 60 to 70% cashless system cashless system within the next 3 years um, at least in kli well
1: you're going to ask me and i'm i'm definitely biased i, I think <laughs> yes in all the other countries that i've studied you need the right timing you need the right foundational building blocks mm. for this to actually happen there's a tipping point where it just it just accelerates and then it takes over like John would describe. In Indonesia, it probably took like five years for this to go from all cash to all digital. Now, in Pakistan, you finally have this free interbank payment rail. You have fintechs that have a license that lets them stand on on their own. You have people who have an increasing preference for digital payments, these young people. And now, I think you're going to start seeing these young people go to places and demand digital So it all starts with I think in Pakistan, it's starting with this young demographic of people who want to shop online, they want to buy a Netflix subscription, they want to buy games and apps on the on the app store, and they need some sort of digital payment method. They need a a card or a virtual card, like SataPay gives you. And that lets them start getting into digital payments. And then they're starting to send money between each other, wallet to wallet or wallet to bank or bank to bank. And as you start using more and more digital payments, you realize us, it's just better. (laughs) And then these young people will go and they'll demand digital. And I say this by giving this example of like Chacha number one and Chacha number two. So Chacha number one has his kitty on a store on this side of the street. And chacha number two is selling the same thing in his Kiriana store on the other side of the street. Now, chacha number one is cash only. Millennial or Gen Z goes to chacha number one, tries to buy whatever they're trying to buy, and gets rejected when they try to pay digitally. So that young person will go right across the street to chacha number two, who just started accepting digital payments. And they'll buy whatever they wanted and be out on on their way in, in, in seconds. Chacha number one is not stupid. Is it worse to pay taxes and be documented? Or is it worse to lose business to your competitors in the area? Right? So everywhere else around the world, this is how it's happened. You have young people who will have an increasing preference for digital payments and they will go to these small retailers and they will try to pay with digital. And these, these small businessmen and women will realize, oh, our customers want this. And oh, okay. It doesn't cost me anything anymore to accept a digital payment. Okay, that's interesting. I'll try it. And they try it, and they realize it's better. And then it starts to pick up this momentum like a flywheel until it just kind of takes over. So you think you, you're going to have a merchant
0: uh, sort of an account as well for for let's say ChaCha number two, who <laughs> you know wants to go digital and wants that QR code. Firstly, and secondly, I think one of the major problems that I see in Pakistan is you know with every store who tried to at least in the in the start go digital a little bit, um, they had to put up like 10 different QRs because every, every millennial was coming and demanding a new FinTech app, right? And uh, do you think, because India with UPI really sort of centralized that entire thing. And so do you think, I, I was hearing about one QR or something of that sort uh, at some point in time um, tell me a little bit about the merchant ecosystem and how you see that evolving over time. Really to become this sort of a fluid user experience that right now, to be very honest, I don't see, and I see that as a major deterrent mm-hmm. um, because it's so confusing for your most of these retailers. Unfortunately, even though your demographic is sort of this middle income, comparatively educated, um, you know, global uh, exposure. Uh, uh, you know, they have the global exposure as well. But these retailers are mostly uneducated. They don't, you know, they don't go for, for anything that is different from what their fathers were doing or what the market is doing. And so you really have to simplify it for them.
1: Hmm. It, it may sound naive, but I disagree. And there's also some proof from other startups that are doing great things in the ecosystem. You see Bazaar, Dastagir, Retailo, Tadger, etc. They're digitizing. The supply chain for merchants and they're starting to use apps and katas to keep track of the money that people owe them fintech will come to these merchants they're already getting used to the means of interacting with a smartphone and recording transactions or ordering their supplies so the next step is accepting digital payments and it will happen i promise I'll bet you. <laughs> okay. But I think I think esen- essentially what we saw in India was exactly what you described. You had a merchant who would have 15 different QR codes on, on the front of his stall. And each QR code would go to each fintech app. And it was ridiculous. It got out of hand. And the central bank over in India actually decided, you know what, we're done with this. There's going to be one specification for an interoperable QR code. And everybody's going to have to start using this QR code. So whether you're paying with phone pay or this pay or that pay that merchant just needs one qr code and they can accept payments from everybody right that just happened in pakistan the regulations came out three or four months ago right so now if any financial institution is going to do a qr code in pakistan it's going to be interoperable rast is interoperable payments Now you have interoperable QR codes that will launch. And now you have all these fintechs that want to get into the merchant space to allow these small businesses to accept digital payments, whether it's with a credit card or a debit card or a QR code. And this will only go faster and faster. This merchant who before might have been scared of it now is going to be more incentivized because it doesn't cost money anymore. Previously, maybe it cost money to accept digital payments or to accept a QR code. Now you can potentially accept a a, a RAST payment over QR, and that will be free. So
0: just to confirm, the merchant could have, let's say, a merchant account with SadaPay, and with the one QR can essentially have any fintech app pay through that QR to your SadaPay account.
1: Is that correct? Potentially. Yeah. So you can imagine.
0: I mean, it's a, it would also be pretty excruciating for that uh, merchant if he has to have like five, 15 different accounts. and then no, transfer no. no, no, no.
1: Them. Yeah. The merchant will have any account. It could be a NayaPay account. It could be a SadaPay account. Right. It could be Easy EasyPesa account or an MCB bank account. And they will be able to accept a QR payment from any app into that one account that they have. They don't need to manage all these different apps. Okay. So maybe it's not a secret anymore, but SadaPay has been building something for freelancers. So we'll launch a business account for them. And we love the idea of how a a freelancer is kind of like a business of one person. Hmm. And we see the product that we build for them, maybe maturing into something that works for a small business, maybe a Kidiana store. We don't know. I think we want to learn from what the ecosystem is doing. And there's so much white space, so many different opportunities in fintech. I think it would make sense for us to focus on the areas that doesn't really have much noise. Right. Um because there's other businesses who are here in Pakistan or maybe coming from abroad who are planning to get into this space. With a limit of 500,000, let's say a, a
0: freelancer and because with the with the dwindling uh, sort of PKR rate, it's just uh, she's got low knows where that that will go, but You know, if a freelancer is sending three thousand dollars to Pakistan, maybe a a couple of years ago that was around five hundred thousand and would have worked. But today, suddenly that that's not what it used to be. Yeah, six hundred fifty thousand, right? And so that's beyond the limit. What happens? Because in Pakistan, if you're able to send it, maybe the bank is going to pop up and say, "Listen, like this is you know you're above the limit and it's not working out." Uh, But when it comes to international payments a lot of times what happens is they yeah. just throw the money and then the money gets lost somewhere in the middle and it's very anxiety inducing because you don't even know who's going to help me. Maybe it's somewhere in the ocean, <laughs> yes. you know? So, so what happens when you actually transfer money that is beyond the limit? Um, and, 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 you know, it's sent from, from abroad,
1: but you don't have it in your account. Yeah. So we wouldn't be able to accept it. Okay. For the regulators who are listening, please <laughs> understand this point. Um, And eventually the money will be sent back to the original uh, sender? Yeah. So the way we would do it with with our payment processing, we wouldn't accept that payment to begin with. So it wouldn't have have left wherever it came from because we don't want it to get stuck. Um, Today, the EMIs have certain limits. And I think the central bank is realizing that there are use cases that are important to the country and to consumers. um, And they will need to modify the regulations to support them. So... It seems as if it's working first for the consumer wallet limits um, and then potentially the merchant wallet limits will will need to be modified because not just for um, freelancers but even for these these kiriana stores like five hundred thousand rupees doesn't really take you very far their turnover turnover could be like a million rupees right yeah, yeah, yeah. so um they, they would argue or someone would argue uh, well how much of that is going to be digital so um yeah i think today the limits are here but tomorrow I think the limits definitely have scope to improve
0: uh, one of the questions that I generally ask all of the uh, sort of fintech players is how are you making your money uh, because everything's free and uh, you know you do, you did mention uh, sort of credit uh, or, or, or micro loans in the future that you could potentially give um, and obviously you go, you got that data that you're going to potentially can use to create those profiles for the, for your customers as well. Um, but first I'd like to understand, do you not require a license for, for lending? And is that essentially why you applied for the digital bank? Um, And secondly, you know, um, I mean, what's the model here? Would you be able to sell potentially monetize customer profile or credit ratings in
1: the future? Um, how, what's the vision with, with the scale? People ask that a lot. (laughs) How do you make money if everything's free? so think of, think of the wallet as, as being the entry point, like I, I spoke about it being the distribution channel. Um, we give you the account for free. We don't charge you any fees for bank transfers. We give you the debit card for free. Um, but in reality, when we give you the debit card, we get paid every time a customer spends money. Right. So if it's a MasterCard or, or a PayPal, whatever scheme it is, that network is charging fees to the merchant. So if I go buy pizza... Right. Um, the pizza place is going to get charged a, a fee and that gets distributed amongst the players in the transaction. If you pay for Food Panda, Food Panda pays a fee for processing a card transaction. So on average, we're, we're getting about one percent whenever someone spends money with a debit card, depending on what kind of transaction it is. Um And then there's all these other things that we could potentially launch. So as we build different businesses on top of this distribution channel, if we help freelancers process international payments, there's margin there for processing the international payments, remittance, getting into credit, etc. Credit does require a license, but EMIs can also be seen as a distribution channel. So we are licensed to take deposits and be a distribution for electronic money. Okay. Right. Um, so you could so partner with potential banks, and you uh, could partner with a bank, right? So we have a lot of bank partners, and we love our bank partners. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Um, in terms of your, uh, you
0: know, I know that you you got one of the one of the most interesting and and talented team, uh, and now you're you're at 250 employees, as you mentioned earlier. Some of the earlier employees that you you got and maybe are still getting, were you offering stock options to them as well? Because in Pakistan, that was never a thing. And uh, I think now more and more startups are beginning to realize, or at least was there a year ago, now there's an ample amount of good startup talent available in the market. But that, that was a different time, you know, the talent was really scarce. And, and you really had to you didn't have a lot of money to, to attract them. And so you had to attract them with some sort of an ownership. Um, so what's your model?
1: Uh, well, you know, we've been so generous here. And sometimes I worry that people don't really appreciate it as much. <laughs> um, I say that because when I first came to Pakistan, I didn't, I didn't really have a co-founder. So half of the company that would have gone to that co-founder, um, I actually decided to leave in the stock option pool. So normally when a startup is started, they will have maybe 10% of the company allocated to the stock option pool to go to employees. Maybe 20%. So ours was 50%. So we were very, very generous and still are very, very generous with ownership in the company. So I think it's like 70, 75, maybe 80 percent of people at SataPay have stock options. Every offer we send includes stock, Um, just only at the very entry level. Maybe um, let's say you join the CX team. So the entry level position, you can start earning stock after six months of doing a great job with us. Um so that has helped us incentivize the most incredible people to join our team. and in terms of the
0: sort of changing global financial climate, um and you we've seen a lot of layoffs, did you guys were you laying off anyone and are you planning on laying off anyone? No, no and plans. how do you how are you looking to maneuver through this time because I mean you you did raise a second round uh, which was fairly. Uh, you know, it was pretty great, but what happens when you run out of this money and the next, uh, you know, mon- set of money is required? But the investors are really conservative right now. Uh, the markets are, there's a bloodbath there. Um, and so, how are you preparing yourself for
1: that? I get this question a lot in interviews <laughs> because people want to join a company that's not going to lay them off later. Um, yeah, we've seen a lot of companies freeze hiring, maybe lay people off, maybe shut down altogether. Um, I think we've been quite lucky to be in a good position. We closed funding in, in May of this year, just a few months ago. Um, also, we, we follow a business model that's a lot more sustainable. As I mentioned earlier, we, d- we don't really spend any money on customer acquisition. So other companies might have spent a lot of money on customer acquisition to try and grow as fast as they could. Maybe unsustainably, giving away discounts. If, if you're selling uh, a dollar, If you're selling a dollar for 90 cents, people will buy that dollar all day. If you're selling goods at a discounted price just to acquire more and more customers, that artificial growth is not sustainable. Um, So we've been really mindful of that. Now, I think if you can have a business model that is more mindful of being sustainable and has an actual path to reaching profitability, investors definitely appreciate that a lot more than they used to. If you have a business that's kind of like, you know, pie in the sky, maybe one day we'll get to profitability when we have so many users, we can sell ads or do this, do that. Um, It's gonna be really hard to raise funding. But there's another light at the end of that tunnel. So 2021 was the most exciting year for venture capital of all time. The most ever invested into startups. Um, 2022 has been a, a slow year but actually still not too bad in comparison to 2020. Um, U.S. venture capital firms today are sitting on over $290 billion of uninvested dry powder. That's what they call it. Mm. And that money will have to be let out at some point. Um, so it seems as if globally there's a lot of uncertainty, macroeconomically, and investors are waiting to find some Macro clarity, um, but eventually that money will will come to market again. So I'm actually really optimistic about 2023. <laughs> so if you do have a strong business and you do have a visible path or line of sight to profitability, investors will be very excited about you. Um, but I think you have to be really careful. Like if you're considering joining a startup that has this, you know, very strange business model where they're spending so much money to acquire customers, I'd I'd be, be weary of that. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, for a lot
0: of people who are in the banking sector, you you earlier mentioned, you know, banks have a crazy amount of profitability in Pakistan. More often than not, they're really relying on the deposits, right? And yeah. they're saying, okay, so you, let's say, <sighs> if I were to really actuarial science out of it, <laughs> you know, I'd, what I I'd do is I take all of my accounts and I would run it for a year and I would I'd begin to identify that with all the input and the output, an X amount always stays in my bank. Um, and in a high inflationary environment, in pa- like Pakistan, you know, there's always that opportunity to earn on float as well, where you can just sort of buy a bunch of T bills and so on and so forth. In terms of your model, a lot of people would call it very, very conservative and not very. I mean, there are there there are so many other areas that you can double your your income. Um, is that is that is the money that you're holding in your wallets is that being wasted essentially is that being burned in a mm. in a 30% inflation environment or at the very least you're you're investing that somewhere i mean i know that you can't give out loans right now can you at the very least use that money to partner with someone who can essentially use that as capital for loans or, or something, Uh, you know, what's, how, how does that excess capital that always stays in the system get used
1: efficiently and more productively? Yeah. Uh, You know, I would, I would think the best way to make use of that capital is to extend credit to, you know, help businesses grow faster. You, you might have a a small business with one location, but it, if it has access to the right working capital, it could expand to two stores, three stores, four stores, five stores. And these small businesses are, are kind of like the backbone of Pakistan's economy. Um, all of this money that sits in banks, all of these deposits, just really get invested into T bills, as you describe, and. That's works. not very productive. Yeah, it works for yeah. them, yeah, works yeah. For them yeah. um, but it's not very productive. So yeah. just like I said in the beginning, lowest private sector credit to GDP ratio here in Pakistan out of all the emerging markets and, and I think developing markets too. But but do you think you can do that without a license with partners? So if we are only going to be an EMI license, uh, if we're only going to operate under the EMI license, we, we're we not allowed to move the deposits. We have to keep the deposits safe in custody, in trust accounts. We can never put them at risk. Okay. Um, So yes, it is potentially inefficient. So we do get um, to earn some percentage. We can invest in T-bills if we want to, but we can't lend them out. Right. If we transition to a different license, let's say we want to become a digital bank, then we can mobilize those deposits and, and put them to work and you know, hopefully right. improve so the So it, it
0: entirely depends on where those deposits go, whether there's an opportunity, and then you will sort of pivot accordingly. Yeah. If I were to ask you over the next 12 months, what, I mean, you, I know that you can do peer to peer, you can do, um, you know, you can probably pay utility <laughs> bills, something that every FinTech yeah. app sort of, I mean, it's, but is there any exciting feature? And I I, I explicitly wanna know about the next 12 months, Nothing, nothing too far-fetched, nothing dreamy. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we really expect coming out? Because I know that you said you're, you're really focused, so you're not really getting into invest in stocks and mm. also you know, get a, give a bat to your dog. or
1: uh, <laughs> What are some of those features? It's tough because these are kind of like secrets. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I can't really tell you about all the fun stuff, but you'll see them soon. I think, I think um, what I can tell you is that we're going to do a lot of really cool things for freelancers specifically. Okay. Right? Um, so, so learning what their pain points are how to deliver on them in a way that that really makes them realize, oh, we are looking out for them. Mm. Um, Remittance as well. So how can we empower the Pakistani diaspora? 15 million overseas Pakistanis who support Pakistan in a really big way, $30 billion a year just from formal channels. Some people say maybe there's double that coming over Hundi Hawala informally. Um, So if we can create efficiencies in these two places, I think that's a big win for us over at least, like the next six months, that will—that's where we'll spend a lot of time. Um, there's a lot of magic that we'll sprinkle with, you know, how people send and receive money. Um, we may—we may see our first credit products. Um, those will be very interesting. There might be a little bit coming soon about savings and investing. I think—I think you can teach financial literacy through thoughtful design. And what I mean is that there's probably only two ways to improve someone's financial position. You can throw money at them, give them a grant or a subsidy, or you can teach them how to better manage their money. Right. Right. Um, So I think you could do that with user experience. So we're very mindful of this. How can you set up good habits? How can you set up automatic savings? How can, how can you teach people the importance of compounding returns? People say it's the eighth wonder of the world, people in finance at least. So, um, I think there's a lot of work that we can do around that in a really fun way, tailored to the demographic of people who, who use SataPay. So the millennial, Gen Z, let's say middle income. Right. Um, you've been very focused on freelancers or, or diaspora. Um,
0: do you think there's a potential opportunity, and I don't know how the technicals of that would work, but there's a potential opportunity for you to connect with someone like PayPal, for example, um, where the IBAN doesn't have to exist anymore? And the IBAN is actually connected to a Sada Pay Plus international account. Um, that that sort of goes on to connect with a PayPal account, and so the folks can just sort of use their PayPal account to be able to send it to you, in the way that an average person is used to, without having to go through the whole Pakistani, you know, give me your SWIFT code, give me your this, give me your that, yeah, um, which becomes a deterrent for a lot of these freelancers who are working with 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 ordinary, let's say, Americans or or
1: you know, so. I wish I could tell you more. Um, we get a lot of questions about PayPal. And, you know, ultimately we've thought about ways how we can route money so that we can help Pakistanis accept PayPal payments. Um, but ultimately, what is it that Pakistanis want? They just want to get paid. <laughs> so if we can help them get paid, and we could do it in a way that's easier than accepting PayPal, because PayPal requires that that other person on the other side has a PayPal account, and um, we think we have maybe a better solution. So um, ultimately, uh, PayPal is tough because they see Pakistan in a certain light. There's certain restrictions about how they as a public company can interact with, with Pakistan. Um, they can't even operate here. Do you think that's, a, that's an FATF issue or that's an overall image issue? There's more to it than that. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll clear FATF, you know, hopefully. Um, but also there's... There's some challenges. The central bank does not want this really sensitive personal data to leave the country. And this is a decision that many countries have made around the world. Turkey, as an example, has laws and regulations around data sovereignty, especially in financial services. So the financial data or critical data of Turkish citizens must stay in Turkey. PayPal had to back out of Turkey because... The regulator would not budge on this. So that means PayPal, this huge company with a very huge and complex infrastructure that powers it, they yeah. have to figure out how to create custom infrastructure just to support Turkey. The same would have to be done for Pakistan. Right. And it's even more difficult because we don't have AWS or Google Cloud or Azure here in Pakistan. So it's almost impossible for them to justify the business case to make such a huge investment technically, Just to get things running to support Pakistan and and the restrictions here,
0: right? Yeah, you've been focused really on the middle middle income sort of um, educated youth. Um, A large part of them do end up having a bank account. When we look at Pakistan, you know, the a a number that's really uh, advertised in these conversations is the banked population: twelve percent, thirteen percent. And when it comes to, I mean, I'm. of course, there's a huge uh, population of women uh, who who require to be banked as well, and I think I I, I do believe within the middle and in, middle income uh, bracket there are a lot of women who find it very very difficult to actually go and get a bank account, so they can definitely use Adape. Uh, but if, I would probably argue at least seventy to seventy-five percent of the potential customer um, is actually not like Indonesia or, or, or China because there is a there is a literacy problem here as well, mm. right? Um, I, I was listening to a a very famous economist uh, on another podcast, and he mentioned, you know, Pakistan is not like any other developing country. Um, For a lot of other countries like Bangladesh and India and and Indonesia, they had some basic fundamentals, you know, figured out. And with Pakistan, you got 17 million kids out of school. Um, You got you got a lot of other problems as well, and that does come into play when it comes to so you know creating a solution to that problem. Mm. One of the things that I saw I, I saw recently was you know, China really was able to identify how to reach out to that particular population, that particular segment. And we saw that with TikTok, um, you know, it happened globally, but with Pakistan, you know, we weren't expecting that demographic to get onto it so so rapidly and be able to use it the way that it's meant to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just TikTok, a lot of these Chinese apps were able to do it. Um, I understand, you know, you want to have like, it's, it's, it's the way you want to enter and really sort of expand onto it, but, how do you really, how, you know, when, when it comes to scale, when you, when it comes to really the opportunity, mm. that opportunity will will definitely look like fifty million people on on a mobile wallet. The fact is, how do those fifty million, maybe five million, are the ones that you could potentially tap right now, and forty-five million require a lot of a lot of other forms of hand holding mm. to get them onto this sort of new way of managing money, mm. right? Um, just as an example, my cook here, uh, right before I was starting this podcast, he was calling the Standard Chartered Bank. The only reason he got that account was because we have a company, um, you a know, payroll. sort of a payroll, account, payroll facility, and then they didn't ask any questions. They asked mm-hmm. us all of those questions. But when, they, when he went to open the account, he didn't put his email address, which is what they used to uh, enable his ATM. And so now every time he calls the helpline, they are asking him all sorts of questions <laughs> that he can't answer, yeah. And they won't listen to anyone else, so I can't talk to them. And he's stuck. It's a it's a dupe that he's stuck in. The account is opened. The salary is transferred to that account. He can't take the money out. And I know for a fact that for a lot of fintechs, like it's the same problem with EasyPesa as well. You know, he has an EasyPesa account, um, but it's so complex. There's so many buttons. There's just so much happening there. Speaking my language, <laughs> you know. But but it's true, right? Like there is a reason why most of these people are not on Instagram. There is a reason why they end up on TikTok because on Instagram when they open that app they have to sign up. On mm-hmm. TikTok they open the app and the content is right there. Content is right there. You know they use WhatsApp because you don't have to write anything. You can just tap a button and you can start message, you know, message with the, with, with with voice notes. Um, so there is definitely in terms of design, okay, how juicy it is, how colorful it is, how intuitive it is. That's one aspect, but in terms of really the UI UX of of your masses, I feel like there isn't enough being done. In Pakistan, you can talk all about you know we're going to tap into this audience. We're going to tap into this audience. Maybe the Karyana store is going to get into it. But the fact is, you know, they're going to be there is a post-colonial sort of officer versus working class divide, where the working class has a, lives in a different economy, mm. and it's a cash economy. It's a grey economy. And 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 to be very honest, with a with a, with an agile, digital-first payment system, the opportunity is incredible. Because you know you don't. There's no real cost of having the next 1,000 accounts, which the banks do, and so they don't. They they tend to ignore and don't just ignore. They tend to f- aggressively push these people away, and they just want the guy in the suit to come and sit on the chair and get that bank account. Mm. And so the only hope that we have now with and and the fact is, without these guys, you can't have a digital Pakistan. You can't even begin to imagine a digital Pakistan. You again, you're doing a three percent economy, a small bubble of Islamabad, Lahore, Karachi, elite, or sort of upper middle class saying, okay, we're gonna live in our own cashless bubble. Mm. Um, and it's it's annoying and it's confusing because, you know, as, as as a business owner, I have to transfer their salaries every month. I can't tap it anywhere. There's no ta- like I can't file taxes for them because I have to take it out in cash. And then it's just, you know, mm-hmm. how do you go from the middle income,
1: educated, you know, early adopter, the critical mass. Yeah. You know, the the example you gave about TikTok is one of my favorites. So you think of how social media has really been tailored to a rather sophisticated audience now with Instagram. And TikTok has leaned into this simplicity, this instant gratification. And, you know, also at the same time, maybe not enough credit is given to people who aren't as educated. In Africa, you've seen M-Pesa and the rise of mobile money by texting, you have to you have to send these rather complicated ussd strings, you have to know the format of the string to figure out how to send money. But it's become omnipresent. 60% of Kenya's GDP is transmitted over GDP GDP is transmitted over M-Pesa a private company. Yeah, M-Pesa is by safaricom. Oh, wow. And this is like, as rudimentary as it gets very 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 simple people who are texting money and texting is not a very user-friendly interface satapay is a very (laughs) user-friendly interface Um, banking here has historically been designed for people who are more sophisticated Um, maybe not even on purpose just generally like the 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 systems weren't thoughtfully designed to be accessible to everybody Um, so in our case we try to be as mindful as possible Um, I have a lot of admiration for for Bassett on our team. He's our lead product designer. And he really takes a look at everything that we build and whatever it is, we question, like, if someone's using an app like this for the first time, will this be intuitive? So having a certain icon on a button doesn't necessarily mean the user is going to know what that button means. Maybe that user has never seen that kind of icon before. So if you can be mindful of this, is this is this disabled button going to be understood is this interface going to be intuitive if you can be mindful of that you can design a very very simple interface that scales to that that mass market that critical mass if you have something like easy pass it's very difficult when you have so many different options so that's why we try to keep everything we do very sada we try to distill all of these options into just what you need to know just what you need to have so that we can make that jump right? You can cross the chasm. You can go from this more sophisticated early adopter, early majority, and then make it across the chasm to everybody else who maybe hasn't used a financial app ever before. Maybe they're starting to use a smartphone, but ultimately credit needs to be given to these people, because they can figure out if it's for their money, they, they understand they'll learn the numbers, right, they'll understand the basics, someone will help them f- th- figure out that very simple flow. Right. Um, and as long as it's simple enough, they will even learn those basics, even if they're not literate. So the app today for Sada is in English. And that's intentional. But tomorrow, it will be localized and if it's localized it will be, it will be done so in a way where it can maintain its simplicity so that it can always be accessible to everybody M- makes sense and one last
0: question on the app front do you think you can potentially because you did mention you know in your chats you're doing emojis and gifs and so on <laughs> and one of the things that great things that chinese are doing is they um, they gamify almost everything right mm-hmm. and uh, i think i feel like when i look at uh, a financial service app i th- i think voice plays a, a, a phenomenal role and you 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 take voice and you you know sort of connect it with a personal assistant of sorts, not a not an entire personal assistant, but really sort of a, um, a sada mascot. Um, you know, you open the app and the mascot's there, and you know you have you have him with a voice <laughs> really guiding you through through it. Because for a lot of Pakistanis, they're actually not going to be able to read even if it's in Urdu. Right. Um, and so you know that person doesn't. What he says is. Um, he he actually speaks what is required. So you know, mm-hmm. welcome to Sada Pe, Um, You know, give me your name, and so I'm mean, I mean just dreaming of the future where voice to text is now so so great that mm-hmm. you can just say, okay, just say your name, and they say the name, and it sort of appears and it repeats the name, and it, you can say yes or no type. Mm. Um, because I feel like when we're there, then you can really add people in, right? And the and the the, the Your your personal assistant with voice. Every time you sign into the app, it's like, oh, you know, you have a lot of money lying around. Would you want to invest? Mm. Um, Or or essentially, you know, again, it's it's that sort of. Do you think you would ever go beyond the youth when when it comes to user experience? Mm. Is it just is design exclusive to icons and tiles and and those? Or are you going to make it multi-dimensional and Mm. and really
1: hit with all the sensory? Uh, you know options available yeah um it's an interesting point that you make and i could i could see how that could work potentially really well here um we've started with multimedia already so if you think about the kind of people who use satapay young gen z millennial they're using social media and they're used to seeing stories vertical video yeah we put stories in a banking app so a user can actually be guided through SadaPay. So right now it's just on the more page, but as we launch more features, we actually have story content that will kind of walk you through the different parts of the app. So someone, not a you know 3D mascot, but an actual human will speak to you. And that human will, will potentially guide you through the experience that potentially you're, you're trying to figure out. But um, I think that's just the beginning. Right. I, I think voice has worked really well. Like even Baikia, Baikia has localized really, really well um, the app for writers, everybody's communicating primarily through, through voice notes as well. And, and I could see how voice could play a, a big role in financial services too. Makes like sense.
0: That. I'm going to ask you the last question that generally I ask all of my guests. Um, how do you see Pakistan when, uh, you know, 28 years from now in 2050, uh, you, you sort of risked a lot, uh, when you decided to come to Pakistan, there's definitely opportunity here and, and I'm glad that you were able to see it as someone, uh, you know, who <laughs> imagined camels and, and, and deserts. <laughs> um, but but obviously you, 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 you made a mind map of, of of this country and the potential and what future you see. Um, and so if you could give me an image of that or, or a slice of that mind map, how do you see Pakistan
1: 28 years from now uh, in 2050? Hmm. I like that. I think... Um I think it starts with digitization, right? You'll see this happen through smartphones. I think it's a future that's absolutely unavoidable. Everybody will have smartphones. Everybody will be connected to the, to the Internet. Everybody will be using digital payments. That's just the beginning. Um, I think Pakistan will probably lean into IT export in a really big way. I really hope to see that because you have so many young people who are graduating potentially, maybe not even graduating, but they have skills that are exportable. And instead of running around trying to find a job locally that pays in rupees, it's just a few steps to understand how to get yourself on the Internet and start earning in dollars and euros and pounds. And bringing all that value into Pakistan, I think, is going to be a really big deal. Um, I like the idea of tourism. So I went to the north. I visited Skardu, Kaplu, um, Hunza, Gilgit, exceptional. Maybe there's an international airport that that has um, planes coming from around the world to see the Himalayas, the Hindu Kush, the Karakoram. Um, so I think that's very exciting. And as you have more and more foreigners who are coming and visiting, I think that repairs the perception issues that Pakistan has had historically. As you have more of these bloggers, as you have more tourists coming in and seeing the country and realizing that it's not this, you know, barren desert full of terrorism. That's honestly the image that many people have in the West of Pakistan. Um, So I'm really excited about potentially bringing foreigners from bloggers you know with sata host them in the north and show them around and show them that it's a really 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 beautiful place up there Um, and along the way have them interact with the locals who you know in pakistan i've I've seen these people be incredibly hospitable pakistanis are so proud whether you're here or abroad pakistanis are incredibly patriotic much more so than many other people I've met from other countries around the world. So I think in a big way, IT export is going to be really important for Pakistan. Omnipresence of digital payments, all of these things, I, I think, are, are rather obvious. And I hope to play a small part in that. That's awesome. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time out and sharing all the insight. I I hope, I mean,
0: I've been personally, I've been, you know, SadaPay Pay has been one of the most exciting products to come out of Pakistan. Uh, this is not just me saying, for the sake of it. I've said it multiple times on the podcast before as well. Um, so I really hope you guys succeed in the vision that you created. And I really, really hope that the the, the backbone and the rail issue and all of those issues are solved and, and you're able to tap into and finally digitize the the majority of the previously untapped. I mean, I'm so sick of cash. Um, you know, I it's I, I've been I've been dying for it to end, but it just every year it just seems to grow even more. I hope we can fix that. Um, for you. <laughs> so I hope you can you can fix that. But okay. thank you so much for coming in and sharing all the insight Thank you, thank you, <laughs> it Was awesome. a pleasure. And for all of you guys, thank you so much for watching. Agar apko episode pasand aaya, apne dost se share share karega. YouTube par like my conversation will will the audio platform my to my will be, my email. So you episodes notification Facebook link click can join that as well If you'd like to support the channel We accept anything from 1 rupee to as much as you'd like It's a thought that counts But anyways this was Sayyam and Zedi. You were watching Thought Behind Things Thank you so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one